turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to jump into the uh, verse there here shortly. But um, we, this is kind of wrapping up the Rethinking the Church series. And we talked last week about uh, the missional church, about being missional, living missionally. And really, uh, it was it turned out to be um, interesting time and discussions, many of the discussions I heard in life groups. Uh, and, and as we chewed on how the culture and the world has changed and how God has called us to live and think as missionaries, not as Christians from Christendom in the Christian kingdom where we just people can, if they want to know Jesus, they can come to us. We've got him here. And we know we need to go out into the communities and the highways and the byways and go after people um, and living missionally. So that's the heartbeat. So uh, go back and listen to that. But uh, in just jumping off from that, I want to um, pause for a moment um, and, and just remind us the whole point of missions flows from, we've talked about this each week, we kind of built on this theme, but it, it flows from a right relationship with Jesus. And if we are reconnected with Jesus and we're worshiping Jesus rightly, missions is a natural thing. Evangelism is a very natural thing. In fact, John Piper wrote a book um, about missions called Let the Nations Be Glad, a great book. But he makes a statement right out of the gates in this book. And, he, and I, I think it's a profound, just remarkable statement. That he said the chief aim of the church, the chief goal of the church is not missions and is not evangelism. That's not the that's not the goal, the primary goal of the church. Primary goal of the church is mission is is worship. Primary goal of the church is worship. And missions exist because worship does not exist. We said again, the primary goal and aim and trajectory and, and purpose of the church is worship, the worship and exaltation and glory of Jesus. And the reason we have to do missions in our community, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, in, in our region, in our state, in our part of the country, in our nation, and around the world. The reason we have to do missions is because there are so many people who have been created in the image of God to have a right relationship with that are, are in sin and disconnected from the one who they were created to know. And they don't worship him. And so we need to do missions because there's so many people that are disconnected from the one they were created to know and to worship. And their lives will never be fully satisfied. They'll never be fully satisfied. They'll never be fully enjoy and to the degree that God intends for them to be if they don't, uh, if they are not reconnected with the one who made them, the one who has given them purpose in life. And so missions exist because worship does not exist. And so if we want to be a missional church and we want to live evangelistic lives, okay, where evangelism, simply put, evangelism means is, is, a, is a word that, that speaks of proclamation, the proclamation of the gospel. So when we talk about evangelizing people or being doing evangelism or living evangelistic lives, we're talking about lives that are proclaiming the gospel in everything we do and, and how we speak and what we say. And so if the reason why it's vital for us to do this is because there's so many people disconnected from the Father. Uh, I think it was Augustine that said, um, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in me. And it was Plato who said that that there's a God-shaped vacuum inside of each person. There's this, there's this chasm, there's this hole. And we try to fill it with all kinds of different things, but nothing's going to satisfy until we are reconnected with 
Jesus. And until we know him and have a right relationship with him, we're never going to be satisfied. So what the reality is, whether you are in um, America, whether you live in the South, whether you're in the North, whether you live in the um, Southeast or the Midwest, or whether you live in our nation or, or the, the Western civilization, or you live in South Africa or any other part of the continent of Africa or South America or Asia, it doesn't really matter where you live, what religious background you have, whether you're a secular humanist or whether you're Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or, um, you know, whatever. Does it matter? You're going to try to fill your life with things that are going to try to give you hope and, and, um, and satisfaction and try to fill that void. And it's not going to work until you find Jesus. Those things are called functional saviors. We had the opportunity this week of, of being interviewed by a, um, a class of elementary kids from a Christian school in, back in Mississippi. A girl that was in her college ministry in the past is, uh, is teaching now, and she called us and said, hey, we interview a missionary every Friday or once a month or something like that, and can we Skype with you guys? And so we did a little Skype interview with them, and they were able to ask our family different questions. It was kind of fun. And uh, one of the questions was, and they're used to, I guess, talking to missionaries all around the world, and what they, they said, you know, get this, they're outside, just outside of Memphis in northwest Mississippi. That'd be for you guys, northwest Mississippi. And, you know, here we are in northeast Tennessee. We're eight hours from, from them. They said, do you guys, um, did you have to learn a new language to be there? That was one of their questions. And um, we said, well, there's an Ethiopian family a couple houses down from us. And we, you know, we, we were working on learning their greetings. But other than that, you know, um, Appalachian redneck is slightly different than North Mississippi redneck, but they're both redneck. So, um, no, nah, we didn't say that. Uh, but, but, you know, that was a great question. Another question was, uh, was uh, do people... Um, worship false gods in like temples and, and carven images and golden, you know, things like that and whatever. And so as we thought about Michelin, how do we respond to that? You know, I, we said, yeah, absolutely. We did have to learn, learn a new language. We had to learn the language of our community and of the people here because they speak. They, they, they um, there's certain things that are normative of our culture. And we had to think about how to connect with people where they're at. What are the things they're really saying? Not what, what language are they using, but what's, what are they really saying? What are the needs? What are the functional saviors that are, that are unique to our area? What are the things that people pursue in Northeast Tennessee that try to fill the void in their life? What are the materialistic, consumeristic, humanistic, whatever things that they pursue to fill the, the, void that they might not even be aware of in their life they're functional saviors that they need to repent of so that they can find true life in jesus and, and as far as what are the idol worship say yeah there's there's a place if you guys heard of us what i asked the class um a place called bristol motor speedway that's a giant idol place neyland stadium it's another place of idol worship um there's um there's a mall down the road you guys have a mall where you live yeah okay yeah that's a place where there's a lot of idol worship goes on there and we listed things that aren't necessarily bad but many times we turn those into functional saviors we meet in a movie theater, which for many people is a functional savior. Escape through media. There's a lot of things that... And so missions exist because worship does not exist. And so when we think of evangelism, that's the goal. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, I think it, it drives home this point. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once 
regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God who through Christ. Here's the key. This is all. This is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, what does it mean to be reconciled? To be reconciled means there's you're an enemy of God. We were enemies of God in opposition to God. Now, you must say, I have, I've never had a problem with God. I've always loved God, thought he was great. I never, if you were living according to your own devices, pursuing functional saviors, you were an enemy of God's. Whether you were actively in rebellion, mad at God, or whether you were passively indifferent and just could care less about God, or he was just a slice of the pie, but he really wasn't, if he's not the center of your life, and he's not the focus of you, then you're an idol worshiper and you're therefore an enemy of God. And so he reconciled us who were in opposition with God and made us friends with God through Jesus. So he said, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, this is the beautiful part, the ministry of reconciliation. Now that we who were worshiping false gods and functional saviors have become friends with God, he's given us the gift and the friendship, the opportunity to reconcile others to Jesus. So now we have the ministry of reconciliation. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was, get this, in Christ and through Jesus, he came and lived on this earth and through Jesus being on this earth, he was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So he's not holding us accountable for our guilt because he's paid for that guilt on the cross with Jesus' suffering, right? And so entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are now ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So God is, God, I don't know, there's a lot of things I don't understand about God. I don't completely understand the Trinity. I don't completely understand how you reconcile God's sovereignty and salvation, and yet we're still accountable, and the man is responsible for whether he rejects or believes Jesus. I don't totally understand that. Another thing I don't really understand is why, of all the things God could use to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus, why would he use us? Why would he use you? Why would he use me? It seems like there would be much more efficient ways. I mean, we know in the Old Testament he used Balaam's donkey, okay, to warn some people that there was, they were in, uh, about to be destroyed. So, you know, donkeys do better than we do. Okay, we could go further King James on that. I'm just going to stop right there um, with that uh, phrase right there. But, uh, you know, he could use hot air balloons with, uh, you, know, uh, you know, messages on the side. He could use, you know, planes to sky right. He could use clouds to just write it in the sky. He could have, you know, rivers, um, you know, proclaiming it. He could, the birds chirping it. There's a lot of different ways. He could have angels just show up and illuminate themselves and explain the way of salvation. A lot of things he does, but, but, but here's what it says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God in his grace has chosen to take us, sinful, unrighteous people, deal with our sinfulness and our unrighteousness, give us Jesus' righteousness. And now that we have been redeemed, we come to other people with humility, with humility, with brokenness, in, in a constant kind of um, posture of 
repentance of the things God's revealing, other areas of our lives we haven't repented of, and a faith in Jesus so that we can share with other people that they can repent and put their faith in Jesus. And they don't have to keep performing to earn God's love, performing to try to feel like they're righteous and good enough. They don't have to keep doing that. They can just rest in what Jesus has already done. They don't have to keep pursuing functional savers that will drop them and let them down again and again and again. And again, they don't have to do that. They can rest in Jesus. And so that's the, that's the goal God has given us. And so when we think about worship, we think about being enemies of God, being reconnected to God. This is, this is the heart. Another way of looking at this, it, within this passage, there's two things he, he shares with us. Number one, he shares our mission, and then he shares with us our merit, and that both of them are from God. Our mission, that we would be ministers of reconciliation, and our merit. On what basis do we deserve to do this? Well, because he is reconciled. He's not counted our trespasses against them. He's entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. He's made us ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. Our mission is that through us, God would appeal to others to repent and trust in him. And, and our merit, what, on what basis do we have to do? Because he has reconciled us. He's through Christ. He's changed us. And so now we have the opportunity to share that with other people. Now, often I meet people, and even in my life, I've experienced there's times where, and I'm not going to have you raise hands because it's pointless, futile effort. All of you would raise your hands. Um, if you've ever been bored in the Christian life, just like, you know, I'm going through the hoops, I'm doing church, I'm doing whatever. I just, you know, and you just feel like, is there got to be more to this than just the ritualism and the attendance and the whatever? And, and you know, there's got to be, the reality is when, when we suddenly shift from just constantly being takers to where we become a channel for the grace of God to pour out to other people, that's when things get radical and exciting. When we shift to where we join God and being on mission, that's where things get radical and exciting. May I put it this way? Who is the expert on electricity? Who would be an expert on electricity? Would it be an electrician or would it be an electric eel? You know, electricians, they know about electricity. They know when to touch it, when not to touch it. They probably learn the hard way at times. Um, um, you know, depending on the voltage, I guess sometimes that's a one time you learn and then you don't ever get that lesson again. Uh, but but they, you know, they, they know in theory about electricity. But electric eels it flows through them it's a different deal and if you want to know about the power of god you could be a a theoretician and you could know about the movement of god's spirit and the power of god and god's spirit moving in through in fact acts 1 8 when the holy spirit comes upon you you will receive you'll be my witnesses uh you're going to receive the the holy spirit you're going to be my witnesses to jerusalem judea samaria the uttermost parts of the world in other words you're going to get power to be my witnesses now getting power to be you say, well, I've never experienced that power. Maybe because you've held it to yourself. Maybe because you've kept that power um, in a notebook and, and it's, it's in a category of theories that you know about, but you've never been a channel for. You put your hand onto an electric wire. If you've ever touched electricity, electricity um, it is, you know, I mean, it will jolt you, okay? And you feel when you feel that suddenly that flows through you. That's now you know the power of electricity. You can flip a switch all day long, but until you've been shocked, okay, you don't really understand the power of electricity, right? And so, understanding that, you want to experience the power of God. Start sharing it with other people. Shift from being reconciled to God to being a having the ministry of reconciliation. And when you start, you say, you know, I'm just kind of complacent and bored in my walk with the God. 
You just share Christ with one person, and I will guarantee you, you will suddenly have a renewed passion for studying God's word. You will immediately get punched in the nose with some question or some thought from somebody, or they're going to push back on you on something, and you're going to be called to uh, and challenged to, you know what, I maybe should have a quiet time tomorrow and maybe start listening on Sunday mornings to sermon. Maybe I should start reading my Bible because I don't know what, that was a crazy question they asked me. I better go find the answer. And you're going to suddenly be fired up to read and study your Bible because you're going to be challenged to be, for it to be fresh. Why do we come together to be in this environment on a weekly basis? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the primary reasons you're here or should be here is that you could feast upon the word of God, understand it and gain knowledge so that you can articulate the gospel to other people in a very clear and fresh way. Not a stamped process or little deal that you memorized back whenever um, that's that's great for memorizing scripture and for understanding a, kind of a clear way of explaining the gospel. No problem with that. But is it fresh in your life to where you can just naturally share? We talk about regularly in life group. Um, who can you share this story that we talked about, this Bible passage this week? Who can you share that with? The point purpose is that we shift from being the Dead Sea. That is just all of the nutrients flow into us. And then we just it, and everything dies there because it, there's no outlet. Or are we going to be like the Sea of Galilee? where it's constantly being nourished and constantly letting um, life flow from it. We want to be the Sea of Galilee, where life comes in, life goes out, not the Dead Sea, where it's just, we're just a dead end and we're, nothing can live there. That's not the goal. So a couple thoughts here. Who should evangelize? One uh, thought there, is it for the professionals? No, it is not just for the professionals. Uh, it is for all believers. So, well, I think that um, it's only... Only that, you know, preacher guys that have a seminary degree, they're the only ones really should should be sharing the gospel. That's one of the reasons why we have an invitation, but we don't have an invitation. I mean, we don't do 16 verses of just as I am and lock the doors and I stand forward down here and then I stop every once in a while and go, I know that somebody, I know God is speaking to somebody right now. And right now, I know there's somebody that's not looking at me that just looked at me. I saw that. Yes, uh, you know, and, um, you know, I know there's somebody here that's had a birthday, two people that have had birthdays, actually three, me too, but... Um, there's two people. I know there's two other people that have birthdays today. And God's calling them right now to come forward. Come, you know. I mean, we don't do those things. We don't try to manipulate people. We don't try, is it because we don't want people to follow Jesus? No, that, quite the opposite. And we want people. But I don't want to train you to, to, that I'm the only one who shares the gospel around here. Okay, so Sunday morning, I can bring people to church. And then the preacher will say, share the gospel and everything's good. No, no, that's, all of us have that goal. And, and, and you said, well, the Great Commission, wasn't that given just to the apostles in Matthew 28. No, it was given to all of us. Okay. And to prove that, to go on um, within the context, to give it to all disciples. But then when you jump to um, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Saul's persecuting the church. Saul, who later became Paul's persecuting the church, dragging Christians into prison because they're sharing the good news everywhere. And anybody who's done that, man, women, um, he's putting them in prison. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Because of persecution, they scattered, and everywhere they went, they shared the gospel with people. And then in Acts chapter 11, verses uh, 19 and on, uh, 19 to 20 something, 21, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, Stephen was stoned to death. Stephen, by the way, was not one of the apostles. He was explaining the gospel, and um, he was killed for it. And so they killed him. He preached an unbelievably, biblically saturated message from the Old Testament as they were killing him. And nonetheless, uh, people scattered out of that. Got, 
funny, funny, quick, funny note. Um, Jesus says, go into all nations, um, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, and go preach the gospel. And what do, the, what do they do? What do the early Christians do? They set up camp in Jerusalem. They don't go. And suddenly Stephen gets stoned. They throw rocks at him and crush his head until he dies. And then they're all like, you know, let's take a mission trip. This would be a great time for a mission. And suddenly everybody wants to go out of town, you know. And well, yeah, why don't we go? Uh, yeah, let's go on the road with this. Let's uh, Jerusalem. We've done enough here. Let's move on. Now, now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. That's north of Sea of Galilee, speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, to the Greeks, speaking the Lord Jesus. I'm sorry, preaching the Lord Jesus, which in essence is evangelism, proclaiming the gospel of Lord, the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So many of those who were believing in the gospel, were repenting and putting faith in Jesus. And so God was using all of this up, not just the apostles with the capital A. He, everybody was proclaiming the gospel and many were being saved. First Peter chapter 3 is written for all believers. Verse 15, it says to just ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill believers like you and like me, we're all sheep. Jesus ultimately is the shepherd. And it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. By the way, again, Worship, uh, evangelism begins with worship. Jesus needs to be center place. And when we're doing that, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and with respect. So always be ready. All of us need to always be ready to articulate the gospel to people, to explain to people the hope that is within us. By the way, First Peter, the context of that is most often the opportunity to proclaim the hope within us. He said, well, who's going to ask to know the hope that's within us, people that observe us being persecuted. That's the context of 1 Peter, by the way. It's people are being persecuted because they're enduring injustice and treated unkindly by the culture, by people around them. They're saying, what's the deal? What is different about you that you deal with this? How do you handle it? And, and they're saying that's the opportunity that you have to explain the hope that's within you. Be ready when that comes. And then John chapter 13, verses 24 and 25 says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another, speaking to the whole body of Christ. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Evangelistically, one of the most powerful tools we have is that we love one another. And when we love one another, this is why being part of a church, a local expression of the body of Christ is critical because you can't say, I love the people of God when you don't ever hang out with them. And so if you are plugged into a local body of believers, now you have an opportunity to show and to um, exercise love. You say, well, I, these people aren't really lovable. Well, you know what? Newsflash, you're not either. Okay, you, you, You're not the most lovable person, and I'm not the most lovable person, and all of us are very lovable on a surface level. But once you get past the surface level, we're, none of us are probably as lovable as we like to think. Okay, There's certain people that um, we've joked for years uh, that we've met in ministry that we call, um, and none of you, of course, are this category, um, but we call them EGRs, EGRs. They're extra grace required kind of people. And it's funny, everybody knows an extra grace required person, but nobody ever would admit that they were an extra grace required person. And the, 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 really the humor of it is we all at times need a little extra grace from other people, right? 
And that's what it means to love one another, is to give some extra grace, unmerited favor and kindness to everybody. Because, you know, if people can give me unmerited favor and kindness, I, can, I want to give that to them and minister to them in that way. And by that, the world knows that all of us are his disciples because we love one another with an unconditional kind of love that the world has never seen. Now, Mark Dever, uh, in a book, Nine Marks, he also has a, also has a great book about uh, evangelism. Um, he gives some different tips on how to evangelize, and this is not um, a next, necessarily a textbook study, but he makes some good points I thought were worth um, going through with you really quickly. And so he says, first one, tell people if they repent. This is how you should evangelize, proclaim the gospel. Tell people that if they repent and believe that they will be saved, but it's costly. But it, it's costly. This is, a, this is an important point. Because you know what we do? We try to sugar up the gospel as much as we can. Um, and uh, we, what we end up doing is it no longer is biblical. And if, if people can have Jesus and have their sin, there's a problem. There's a problem with that. Now, that being said, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You don't try to make yourself righteous and, and, and polish yourself up so that Jesus will love you. No, no, no. He loves you in your sin. He, he accepts all of us in in the midst of our, um, you know, the, the muck and mire of the world that we find ourselves in when we come to our senses and realize we need Jesus. He loves us in the midst of that and is committed to cleaning that. But we have to be willing to say, I'm done with the muck and mire. And at that point where we are willing to lay it all down and, and uh, follow Christ, that's the beginning. You, you say, uh, well, prove that. Well, Jesus made it really clear when he said, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me. Does that sound like a popular message? Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. Where do you hear that message in churches today? Well, often we don't preach it. But there's a guy, a, a well-known guy, probably I would imagine 75 to 100 years ago, that was talking about being in ch- church for one of the first times. And he looked around, he said he heard a preacher saying that, the, the preacher, priest, whoever it was, deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. And he looked around, and he saw this just opulent, beautiful cathedral and um, this giant ornate bible with gold leafing on the edge and tassels and velvet and and robes and you know extravagance and these pews that were just you know extravagant in the room the architecture everything was just way over the top uh you know excessive extravagant uh expensive and then he heard the preacher saying deny yourself take up the cross and follow me and he said it just didn't make sense you know when you deny yourself take up the cross and follow jesus not because i want to go on the winning team they're the way oh or that team's winning okay i'm going to join that team you know there's a lot of yukon fans right now okay um, nobody knew who yukon was and now they didn't they win the national championship is that right yeah and now everybody's you know yukon fans okay where did that come from well they won so everybody wants to be on the winning team and so you know, we, we try to do whatever we can to market the gospel in a way that makes people go, you know, what? yeah, Jesus is cool. Let's do that. If we could just get some some um, name brand, uh, you know, some some popular musicians and um, we can get some sports figures and some people in Hollywood. And if they'll follow Jesus, then everybody will follow Jesus. We just need to get some people that we can put on the billboard. You know what? It's more compelling when you deny yourself, take your cross and follow Jesus than when some famous person does it and then uh, flies around getting big checks to preach and share their testimony in different places. You know, it, it, that's, the point is it's going to be costly if we're going to follow Christ. Not 
that we earn our salvation by buying it by a great sacrifice. We cannot purchase it with our own righteousness because we don't have any righteousness. Nor um, can, we, uh, can we buy it with... By, uh, the, the only way we can gain the gospel is by willing, willing to lay down our functional, worthless saviors. Uh, so here's the thing. We can't earn it with our own righteousness, but, it, uh, but we, we must lay down our functional saviors. Now, quite frankly, they're worthless anyways. So there's really not a cost, but there is a cost. You've got to lay down the stuff that's going to kill you and that's not going to help you and that will send you to hell for the one thing that really matters. You know? And that's, that's the reality. Tell people if they repent, number two, tell people if they repent um, and, believed the, and believe the gospel that they will be saved, but they must decide now. You know, they have to, like, right now, there's an urgency in the gospel. When none of us have any idea how long we will live. And it is a very foolish thing to do, is to resist the conviction and the leadership of the Holy Spirit when God is wooing you in your heart and you say, you know what, I would like to live for myself a little longer. There's a couple other things I'd like to do in rebellion against God until I've done all those things. And then when I've done those things and I'm satisfied and I've done enough of the worldly things, then I'll come back to Jesus um, or I'll come to Jesus. You know, that, I'm waiting for that. That might make sense to you, but I can assure you that the knock of conviction will grow much more faint as the years go by to where one day you're just going to continue in your sin. I would encourage you to repent and trust in Jesus if you haven't. And we need to encourage other people to repent and trust in Jesus. Ephesians chapter five, verse 16 says, redeem the, redeem the time for the days are evil. First Corinthians seven twenty nine says, talks about the appointed time has grown very short. And it goes on in verse 31 to say, for this present form of this world is passing away. And then the next book, second Corinthians six, uh, verse two, it says in the favorable time, I, listen to you and in the day of salvation i have helped you behold now is the favorable time behold now is the day of salvation we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry every once in a while when i'm sharing the gospel with somebody and i just I, and they're they're like yeah let me um let me think on it a little bit and i, I never try to pressure people um, there was a book written by a pastor. Uh, well, I don't know if it was a pastor. It was evangelist training people how to do evangelism. He obviously must have sold cars before he sold Jesus. And so, um, and he would talk about, um, and he even had snapshots and pictures about how you, you want to push for the decision and you want to put your hand on their shoulder and you want to kind of lean in and say, why don't you trust Jesus right now? What do we do? We just pray this prayer. What do we? And he kind of showed how to close the sale. If you've been in sales, you know what that's like. You know, you got to close the sale. You got the pressure. You kind of communicate things. People are kind of working through it. And when they're, Open in that moment of receptivity, close the sale. Well, if God's really working and bringing about repentance and faith, you know, you don't have to manipulate them. Um, that's not what I'm talking about, about there being urgency. But sometimes I have shared with people where I saw clearly God was working in their hearts and there's conviction. And I, and I would say, well, if you don't, you could surrender your life to Christ right now. Are you ready to do that? Do you need to think about this, chew on this? You know, uh, and often people will say, well, I want to think about it. Well, let me pray for you. Uh, before you leave and I, my prayer does not guarantee anything but i just want you to understand in my prayer for you the urgency of this you don't know how long you'll have um, none of us do and so i'll pray for them god i pray that you would preserve their lives uh, lord I, you might not but i pray that you would preserve their lives until a time that they would repent and they would trust in you i don't always say that to people but i want them to understand there's that urgency in the gospel and today is the day of salvation and that's not one thing you want to procrastinate on number three Tell them if they repent and believe, they will be saved. However difficult it may be, it will be worth it. 
following Jesus does not make life easier. Honestly, we'll probably make things harder. According to Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole list of people who have suffered, who suffered great things for the sake of their faith in God um, in this world, living for an eternal city that they never got to experience or enjoy on this earth. They didn't even get to enjoy what we have enjoyed in repentance and faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They didn't even have that. And yet um, they faithfully trusted and looked to a future salvation in hope of uh, one day uh, being with God in heaven. And so they trusted God, and, and God s- said that he was not ashamed to be called their God. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And then 2 Corinthians four seventeen, for this light momentary affliction is preparing. That's what all the suffering that you've experienced in this wor- world, and the worst suffering that anybody has experienced in this world, the Bible calls a momentary light affliction. That's like an uncomfortable hiccup, okay, um, compared to the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us in heaven. The worst day on earth is just not a big, it's a speed bump. It's a little uncomfortable thing compared to the glory of heaven. That might be real bad in this lifetime, but understand what you have for you and the hope of heaven, it will be way better. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are, are seen are transient, they're passing away, but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. Last two points, use the Bible. Acts chapter 8, Philip uh, is, is led to talk to an um, Ethiopian eunuch who's going along in a chariot. Philip somehow jumps up onto the chariot because this guy's reading a scroll. What you're reading? Reading the Old Testament about, in Isaiah about this lamb that's going to come. And I just don't really understand the suffering servant, what's going on here. And he has the opportunity to explain to him the gospel from the Old Testament. Use scripture. Your testimony is wonderful and powerful, but in a relativistic postmodern society that we live in, what people hear when you share your testimony alone is that is awesome that you have found hope in Jesus, but that's not for me. But when we share the gospel biblically and our testimony, they can hear, hey, how it's changed your life. But then biblically, they, they sense the authority of the eternal God speaking through his eternal word to their hearts. Use the word of God. Memorize some passages that explain the gospel and share that with people. Uh, even better, show them from your Bible you know, some or your Bible app or whatever, some scriptures so that they can read the word of God and see uh, and print that uh, now is the time of salvation. That's a little more convicting from the word of God than you just going, hey, you know, you really should get saved now. I would rather hear God say today is the day of salvation. And then you say, you know what? God in sovereignty is drawing you to himself. The fact that we're having this conversation clearly is God has put us in one another's paths. And um, clearly he loves you and he wants you to know him right now. So why would you not respond? Look what it says. And let the word of God speak to them, calling them to repentance, calling them. Let Jesus say, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. Not you. You don't have to say that. Let Jesus say that to them. Show them. Point that out to them. Use the Bible. Last couple thoughts. Realize that lives, the lives of individual Christians and the church as a whole are a central part of evangelism. The lives of, of Christians and the church as a whole are a central part of evangelism. We do not invite people to church just to hear the gospel. I'm going to invite my friends to church so they can hear the gospel. I mean, I appreciate you inviting friends, and I hope you will. I hope you'll invite a friend for Easter. In fact, you can't come to the Easter service next week unless you bring a friend. You're not allowed to, I'm kidding, come. But I'd encourage you to bring a friend. But we don't bring people to church just to hear the gospel. We bring people to church to see the gospel. And they see the gospel when we love one another, when we serve one another, when we care about one another, when we pray for one another, when we 
We, this should be the most friendly, welcoming place on earth. We, people need to see the gospel, not just hear about it. If they hear it, they don't see it, then they will not know that we really believe it. Many of us have been to churches also that, that you, 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 you just didn't want to invite anybody to. You just thought, I, you know, it's my church. I like my church, but, I, you know, I don't, I don't think my friends will get it. Or, this, or you want to keep new Christians or people that are um, thinking about Jesus away from it because you don't want them to get um, bad examples by being around the people. You know, I hope that we're not one of those churches. I hope we never are one of those churches. We want to be an environment where everybody's welcome. It doesn't matter where you're at in your walk with God. It doesn't matter whether you hate God or you're kind of warming up to him or you're not sure what you think you're just exploring or whether you followed Jesus recently or whether you've been a Christian for a long time or whether you um, have been a Christian for a really, really long time. You're still wearing spiritual diapers and drinking milk and you need to grow and mature. Wherever you're at in the that spectrum of, of death to life and far from God, close to God, new believer, old believer, whatever, wherever you're at in that pendulum, I mean, on that scale, it doesn't matter. We hope that everybody is welcome. Everybody's encouraged. Everybody is loved. And we can invite anybody who's not actively involved in a church. But realize that individual Christians and the church as a whole is a central part of evangelism, inviting people into our life groups, into our, our gatherings. The last one is remember to pray. Pray for God to send out workers into the harvest. Some people call this, um, you know, aerial warfare. If you're going to invade the first thing you do is soften up the defenses with an air raid. You know, just drop some bombs, carpet bomb, and then we can go in and invade. One of the things that we probably should be doing a lot more of is praying for our community, that people and for our friends that are far from God, praying that God would raise up and thrust out workers um, into the harvest. And that's uh, one of the places we want to begin. Just summarizing all this, I, I want to end with this thought in Isaiah chapter 6. Here's what's going on. God takes Isaiah in chapter 6. He just heard of King Uzziah. He was the president, if you will, of, that, the, of Israel. And King Uzziah dies. And uh, I, I'm sorry, King, yeah, King Uz, Uzziah dies. And Israel's really upset about it because he was, um, I'm sorry, Isaiah was really upset because he was a friend of Uzziah's. And so he's grieving this and it calls him to, cause him to go to the temple to go seek God and to find um, some comfort. And while he's in the temple, God just totally rips the roof off, I guess, and gives him a vision. And he sees into heaven and he sees God, and I would argue Jesus, enthroned on in his glory with his train of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim flying around singing, holy, holy, holy. It's this amazing moment where Isaiah, the man, is in the presence of God and he knows that that is not a good thing for a sinful man to be in the presence of a holy God. And so he immediately is aware of his sinfulness and he drops to the floor aware of his, that he, he's going to be incinerated in the glory and the holiness of God. He got immediately dispatches an angel to go touch his lips, to cauterize, to, to purify his sinfulness. And Isaiah says, uh, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. If we're going to be an evangelistic, missional church, the first thing is we have to have a vision of who Jesus is. He is a throne enthroned on high. He is the king of the universe. He is the king of this world. He caused everything to be there. Nothing that is that did not come through him, that he did not make. He has authority over all things to the point where God even called his son Jesus to come to this earth to put on flesh, to live a perfect life, a righteous life, died for our, our, our 
unrighteousness, buried, resurrected, and now lives to call us to repentance and faith and will judge the whole world. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. And until we put Jesus back on the throne in our lives, that's the first step. But when he's where he needs to be, suddenly we're aware of our need. I'm sinful. <laughs> I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. We, we see Jesus for who he is. We see ourselves for who we are. When we see ourselves for who we are, then we can suddenly see the community for what it is. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And suddenly, the consumeristic, humanistic, materialistic, what's the latest this, that, whatever, pursuits of this world don't really matter anymore. Jesus is enthroned. I am an unclean man living among a people of unclean lips. And I need Jesus' grace. And because I have repented and he has purified me, now I'm in a posture and a position where now I can be a vessel to other people. Right after that, God says to Isaiah in kind of a funny little exchange, I really need somebody to go to Israel and call them to repentance and faith in me and to be a missionary. Is there anybody out there who could be a missionary? Anybody? He's like looking over Isaiah. And Isaiah's going, me, me, me. I see myself for who I am. I've seen you for who you are, myself for who I am. I see my community. I'm, I am ready. You just tell me where. And then that's the call for us. We're not saying, you know what? If you love God, you do evangelism. You need to share your faith. You need to do these things. No, you need to put Jesus where he's supposed to be. Enthroned on high in your life. See yourself for who you are in need of the gospel still. And as you're repenting and trusting God and growing in that and resting since you've been reconciled to God, through Christ, now you have the ministry of reconciliation. And we're going to take a moment and we're going to just move into a time of our invitational time. And I'm going to stay down front and I'll be glad to pray with you, encourage you. If you need to repent and trust in Jesus, you need to do that this morning.